Good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. We are excited to have in studio with us Corey Kugan-Sizek, who is just back from her world tour of cyclocross. Corey, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here in the studio. Before we get into our conversation with Corey, we're going to do a little bit, as we always do, velodrome news. Um, we've got the World Championships coming up starting next week. Uh, in fact, on Wednesday, uh, the 27th, is the kickoff for World Championships in Poland. Those will go through March 3rd. Uh, Jen Valente from the United States is going to be racing in the Omnium and on the Team Pursuit team. Uh, and up-and-coming racer. Ashton Lambie is going to be riding in the international pursuit or individual pursuit, excuse me. And uh, he's actually a world record holder right now. So it should be a good blasting race from him. One disappointing piece of news, and I probably am sharing this out of school a little bit, but uh, it looks like Kelly Catlin had a little bit of an injury prior to Worlds. And so uh, her participation may be up in the air for the team pursuit, which is kind of a bummer. Uh, many of you know Kelly from here in the Twin Cities. Um, so we wish her a quick and speedy and full recovery and I hope she can make it over to Poland in time for the world championships. Um, as you may have seen on the web uh, lately, this is the victory lap season for the National Sports Center Velodrome coming up this year. Uh, after 30 years of racing, that uh, storied facility is going to be uh, no more, uh, but we do have a lot of things going on uh, all season long there. May 23rd will be opening night for our victory lap season, so be sure to come out uh, if you want to try the track. We're going to have some try it out days. We've of course got our beginners classes that you're able to sign up for now at nscsports.org slash velo. Uh, and then, of course, the Minnesota Cycling Center is working to build the next generation of track cycling here in Minnesota. And uh, we're, we're happy to say that our bills have been introduced in the legislature. So we're going to be putting out a full court press to get people to uh, send letters of support and phone calls to their legislators asking them to support our legislation. So keep your eyes on your inbox uh, for those. If you haven't signed up for the Cycling Center newsletter, be sure to do that at mncyclingcenter.org. All right. So we're going to go from one track the wood track to the mud tracks of Belgium. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you just got back on Thursday. Are you feeling like you're back in the right time zone yet? Not at all. Um, <laughs> I may, I did sleep till 5.30 this morning, but it was 4 a.m. yesterday morning. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Evenings have been rough. I bet. I bet. So this was your second season of racing as a pro in the, in the world elite ranks over there in Europe. How do you feel overall about the experience you had this season? This season was a huge improvement over last season. Um, I, in fact, I'm going to say it's a success. Last year was kind of going over there and getting my head kicked in and being largely <laughs> overwhelmed. Um, this year, the beginning of the year was much like that, um, but I kind of found my feet quickly mm -hmm. after about a month or so. Um, and by the end, I actually felt very much at home. That's so this great. was a transition season for me, you nice. know, getting used to um, being successful over there. Yeah. Well, you had a pretty unique opportunity to race in World Cup this year, too. What was that like lining up for your first World Cup? You know, actually, my first World Cups were last year. Oh, you did get um, one last year. I did two last year and three this year. Wow. Yeah. So um, my first one was Zolder um, in late 2017, so mm -hmm. December of 2017. Um yeah, and that first one was absolutely overwhelming. I definitely felt like an <laughs> imposter. Uh, whereas now, World Cups have started to feel like any other race. That's great. 
That's great. I mean, it's got to bring out a much larger and more, you know, more deep field for those kind of races. Do you approach the, tr- the preparation for a World Cup differently than another race? I, I would say you come into a World Cup more tapered yeah. than the other races. Um, the other thing is that you have a pre-ride the day before mm-hmm. for World Cups, whereas the average Belgian race you pre-ride the day of. Oh, wow. So there's a, there's a lot more uh, preparation or a lot more excitement around it because yeah. there's that deliberate lead up to it. Interesting. Well, and I got to believe, too, that that has some potential for challenge, too, because weather can change so dramatically from one day to the next, right? It can. And you know what's actually unique about pre-riding World Cups is that the courses are so physically demanding that you do a warm-up for your pre-ride. Oh, wow. Yeah, so everybody's there an hour before pre-ride, like, on the rollers. Because the you're getting to, like, max power trying to even make it up some of the climbs, so you can't go into it cold or it's yeah. just suffering. It's, it's interesting, you know, I, and a lot of people will say that cross is cross, but it really does feel like, especially when you compare it to uh, American cross racing, it's a totally different sport in Europe. It's a different world. Um, it's a different world because the courses are so much more physical. Yeah. And then obviously the World Cup courses are another big step up from there. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, there are features that are actually scary on World <laughs> Cup courses. So does that pre-ride actually get rid of most of the nerves once you've seen what you're up against? You know, it does. Um, when I was initially starting to do World Cups last year, you're intimidated by the pre-ride just because of who you're around. I suppose. Uh, you know, you're around the best in the world, so you definitely want to want to hit the lines and not put your foot down in an awkward location and certainly not come off the bike when you have someone behind you. Yeah. Like, say, Mariana Voss. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that that's one of those things like, oh, I can't screw her up. Right, right, right yeah. exactly. So. <laughs> You uh, you must have had some some new goals for this season after your first experience. Tell us a little bit about what those goals were, and, and do you feel like if you feel like you met them? You know, it was sort of nebulous. It's it's hard to say. Okay, I want to be you know twentieth in the World Cup. Um, I had a sense of what pack I was finishing among last year, and I mm-hmm. basically wanted to jump into the next pack. And so for some of the smaller races, that might be a top ten or a top fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, for World Cup, that might be forty fifth. Yep. Um, the other thing is just last year was sort of a sort of a train wreck. Um, <laughs> I had the typical Belgian experience where by the end I was completely cracked. Um, so I was exhausted by the end. It couldn't really have the performances. Mm-hmm. Um, so this year, my biggest goal was to get through the season and still be healthy and still be racing well at the end and have my season go up rather than down. Yeah. How many races did you do this year? You know, I have no idea, but it was <laughs> it was staggering. Um, it was every Saturday, Sunday from the time I was over there, which was right around Thanksgiving. Uh, during the curse period block around Christmas, we did, I think, five races in 10 days. Wow. And then there were some midweek races. There's the occasional Monday or Wednesday mm-hmm. race. So it's a lot. It's a density of racing we can't do in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, obviously, with the physical proximity, you can get to those races pretty quickly from one day to the next, right? Right. And yeah. that's one of the pleasures of living in Belgium. I never spent more than two hours getting to a race. Wow. So, you know, when you're racing the continental United States and you're getting on an airplane and packing and unpacking your bike, it's a huge ordeal. You can't even get to Iowa in two hours. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. In fact, when you when you share that information with the Belgians and the Europeans, they're shocked because yeah. they're not used to a two hour race is a big big deal for them if they yeah. have to drive that far. Absolutely. And so with how do you manage a schedule that's that long and that intense? I mean, I can't I can't imagine what it's like to be up and ready for races that frequently. 
Yeah, you know, part of it is the density of races, but the other thing is how difficult the races are. And I don't just mean, um, you know, that they're hilly or steep climbs or steep descents. The other thing is the weather is awful. <laughs> um, you know, so you're warming up and cooling down and warming up and cooling down because you'll do two pre-rides. Typically, there isn't enough time to do mm-hmm. a single pre-ride. So you're out there getting covered in mud, getting wet, <laughs> and then you have, say, a half hour to change clothes, go out and do it again. So your body is getting hot and cold and hot and cold, and then there's warm up and the cool down. And that's just physically really difficult on your body. You make it sound so magical. It is it is really pretty magical. I mean, there's a lot of time spent standing in a lot of mud, cold and wet and going, I must really love this because that's the only way I can explain what I'm doing here. As you look back on the season, what are some of the one or two highlights that you've that you really that stand out for you? Um, I think the highlight of the season for me were the sand races. The first one I did when I got there was the Coxida World Cup which is on the coast of Mm -hmm. Belgium, and it's basically all sand. It's sand dunes, the kind of sand dunes we'd never be allowed to ride bicycles up and down in this country. (laughs) Uh, You know, but in Belgium, that's to be expected. Right, that's what they're there for. (laughs) Yeah, so it's it's a pure sand race. It's It's a lot of running. It's incredibly physical. And, of course, the atmosphere is amazing because it's this iconic race that's been going on forever in Belgium. So yeah. that was a huge one for me. Um, the other was kind of a, a moment when I was out training in January and all of a sudden I realized I'm comfortable here. Like I feel at home. Um, my body's doing really well. So it was this moment where all of a sudden I realized I had adapted to Belgium, mm-hmm. you know, so it was five months into Belgium, three months the first year and then two months into this year. And I finally felt like I kind of got Belgium. Yeah. I, I, I reflected on your uh, your blog post that you wrote for CX magazine uh, about how learning Dutch actually gives you watts. And that sort of stuck with me. Talk a little bit about what that comfort means and, and how it helped you feel feel better in your races. You know, the thing is, because we talked about how difficult the races are, but honestly, the most difficult thing about Belgium is living there, is living in a totally different culture. Mm-hmm. So it's basically this overstimulus every single day. Yeah. You know, you go to the grocery store, you don't recognize the foods, you don't know how to interact with people or ask things. You pick out the bread and go to the bread machine and can't figure out what bag to put it in. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's these little challenges all day. So it's like every moment of your day you're thinking and trying to puzzle your way through. So that's just mentally very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge part of the fatigue that comes in over time. Yeah, and and especially with the language barrier, you know, the smaller towns in Flanders, they don't really have English. I mean, you know, when you're in Brussels or Brugge or Antwerp, the, you know, a lot of people will speak English there, but not in most of those small towns like Odenard where you were staying. Right. It's not absolutely a given. Um, certainly in the grocery stores, I would say, would be a place that maybe the workers don't speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, you always want to attempt to do it on your own, so you want to be figuring out some of it. You don't always want to default to coming up to someone and saying, hi, do you speak English? <laughs> right. So so to be able to have some of it, to be able to read food labels or to know that um, not only is that a pig, is it pork that you're buying, but it's actually tongue, you know? So there are Americans who feel pretty savvy because, you know, you can see the picture of the animal on right. the outside. Yeah. 
Um, but it helps to actually know what portion of the animal. Yeah, is as well. turns out that's a foot there. Right, turns out. So, <laughs> well, you obviously made a lot of changes in preparation for the season to get you to that level of comfort. Talk, talk a little bit about what are the things you added to the mix this year that were different. Um, the biggest thing is I started working with Helen Wyman. Um, Helen uh, is a professional cyclocrosser out of Great Britain mm-hmm. with a, a, some uh, World Cup podiums as well as has been her national champion many times over. Um, and she's British, but she spent a number of years living and racing in Belgium. Hmm. So the physical preparation she was able to plan out for me was indispensable, but so was knowing how to survive Belgium. Mm-hmm. She knew how to pace my workout so that I was fit by the end. But I was also rested, so I was leveraging her experience there, and that was a huge game changer. That's great. And she was still racing this season, wasn't she? She was still racing this season. Um, she's actually retiring. Yeah. Um, her last race will be tomorrow. So, but it was great to have the experience of being able to, yes, be on the course with her. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, before I went over to Belgium, she was here for the World Cups, so I trained with her for a week in mm-hmm. Iowa City. Wow, that's great. And that also allowed me to connect to some other significant riders you know she knew people Mm -hmm. so it was easy for me to get to know people and to therefore not be intimidated by these amazing riders when you can train beside them and Mm -hmm. you realize they're mortal and when you realize they're (laughs) mortal um, you can more readily race with them yeah is 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 it a, a feeling of camaraderie uh in the in the field i mean is it or is it a, a pretty cutthroat environment um i think over time there's a feeling of camaraderie uh one of the things that I saw last year that really hit home for me was I was at a, a race over cursed period, uh, low and hot, and that is notoriously busy and trafficy and has thousands upon thousands of spectators. But it also has the course set up in such a way that it's very difficult for riders to get back and forth. Mm. So as you get off the course for pre-ride, suddenly you can be stuck on the inside of the course and you can't get back to the motorhomes where right. people are warming up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was stuck waiting for at least 15 minutes to get oh, across man. the course at some point. But I'm standing next to Sonny Kant. And the thing is, it doesn't really matter how big you are. Everybody has the same challenges and difficulties right. in Belgium. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, in time, you're, you're hanging out with these women and you're you're watching them get asked for autographs or what have you. And sure. And they just everybody starts to seem a little mortal. Yeah, for sure. that's great. And and I've had the opportunity to go to a few cross races in Belgium, the curse period races in particular. And the, the fan base there just blows my mind. I mean, it's incredible to see the number of people that are there and the insanity in outside the fence. What was that experience like riding through that sort of beer soaked maze that those courses can be? You know, some of the actually the experience that's truly different is leading up to the race when you're around the venue and you're warming up. It's funny the degree to which I got used to it, but one of the last races I was warming up and looking around and thinking, I can't believe this has become ordinary for me (laughs) because you'll be on the rollers and you'll have 10 people spread out in front of you all staring at you. Or they'll come up to you and they'll your bike will be on the stand and they'll be touching the tires. You know, they're very interested in what you're doing, being part of the warm up and the the preparation. And then there's a lot of uh, autograph seeking. Hmm. Um, It's sort of normal that you have rider cards um, to give out and sign. Uh, Likewise, there are people who come and take your picture one week and they come back the next week with your picture printed out and they want your autograph. Wow. So you just get used to that. You know, you get there, you're at the venue, you're trying to get ready and there are people just queued up outside the car to get 
autographs. No kidding. And initially it's, wow, I'm famous and it's overwhelming. And yeah. then by the end, it's just part of your warm up. It's just wow. part of the ritual. Sign a few of these, go over. And they're pretty respectful about um, trying to cue in on when there's an opening. Yeah. You know, they don't come up to you when you're on the rollers, yep. but the second you get off, they're, That's great. they're on top of you. And and when you're out on the course in the, in the race, do you find people to be pretty supportive or is there a little bit of a heckle thing that goes on? Or For the most part, there's no heckling. Really? Um, by and large, I would say... 75% of the fans are true cyclocross fans yeah. and they appreciate what you're doing and they appreciate what you're doing all the way to the back riders. They appreciate having the Americans there. When you do something technically well, you'll hear them, you know, gasp or be otherwise mm-hmm. impressed. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of support. And after my first year, I started to get a little bit of a following. So I would That's hear great. my name around the course. Fun. Um, except for they tended to pronounce it Koei. So I would hear Koei, Koei all over the course. Um, there are exceptions to this. Uh, Zonhoven in particular is more of a party race yeah. where I'd say maybe 25% of the fans mm-hmm. are there for the party. Um, and Zonhoven is the one with the huge sand bowl. Basically, yeah. you ride down the side of the sand bowl across the bottom and back up the other side. And that bowl is basically drunken insanity. Um, And you enter the bowl the first time, and invariably there's a ton of crashes on the first lap, and you just hear these roars go up. Uh And then as you continue to race, as the roar goes up, you realize somebody's crashed. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of um, figure out what's going on in the other three sections of the bowl based on the roars. Um, But it's the only time I really felt people, you know, finding it humorous when we crashed or... You know, they were there for the entertainment of watching us roll down the side, whereas yeah. typically most of the races, they're truly there for watching cyclocross. One of the races we had a chance to go to was uh, there. It was about half sand and there was one particularly high dune and all, everybody. I think there were maybe five people the whole day that actually made it all the way up. But every time it was like, go, go, go. Oh, <laughs> go, go, go. Oh, it was just great to watch the crowd really trying to support people and push them up the hill almost. Yep. And there's a lot of there's a lot of beer cups. There's a lot of smoking. Um, you know, the first time I ever went there, it was overwhelming and different. But now it's it's sort of like I don't even see it. That's great. But I do laugh sometimes when there's someone I'm warming up and there's somebody with a cigar right next to me, and it's just a it's a different environment. Yeah. And are there one or two races that are really your favorites? I mean, of all the courses that you've had a chance to ride and all the races you've had to be a part had a chance to be a part of. You know, ironically, I've really become a sand person. Um, I loved Coxida. I love Zonhoven. Uh, Mole, where they have the Masters Worlds, mm-hmm. is on a beach with extended runs, like probably 400 meters at a time. And I love those because they're difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the races that you're just fighting to keep going. And those tend to be the ones I perform best in when there's a lot of suffering. And so you're looking forward to those really hard slogs. Right. It's hard to <laughs> truly look forward to them, but I know that, that those are going to be my best days. Yeah. Do you do you try to target races like that specifically? Or, are you? I mean, in terms of your training and prep? Well, this year was quite a change because I started working with Helen. Mm-hmm. So everything was sort of different in my training. Um I lost 15 pounds over the summer. Wow. And my training, the preparation was so different. There was a a lot more strength on the bike. There was a lot more sprinting. So I went into the season suddenly not knowing what my strengths were anymore. It was like I had a different deck of cards to work with. 
Um, so for much of the season, I was sort of flying blind because in the past, I would say that my diesel engine was my strength. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden now it was my ability to sprint out of corners. Wow. Um, so it was like redefining myself. And by the time I got to the end of the season, I knew what I'm good at now with mm-hmm. my body as it currently is. Um, but this year was was figuring it out. So next year, yes, I will target certain races because I think it's pretty clear to me what I'm good at. Those suffer fast as well as climbing <laughs> and running as well. Are you going to continue working with Helen? I am uh, definitely. Yeah, yes, that's it's great. Been great. Yeah. And I really um, I looked at it as a two year plan mm-hmm. because I think anytime you start with a new coach, that's the amount of time it takes sure. to, to really get used to it and to yep. start to this year was getting used to it mm-hmm. um, next year. Hopefully I'll get another performance. Yeah. Jump. And I'm sure just all of the things that you've worked on and developed, it's hard to implement those right out of the gate. You know, you need to take time to practice and, and fine tune that stuff. Right. 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 Yeah. And it's time, yeah. you know, workouts building on each other. Sure. Yep. You raced this year for the Amy D foundation. What was it like to be a part of that team and, and to that legacy and, you know, the commitment that they have? Um, the first thing is that it presented an opportunity for me in the United States. Um, I really needed the on-site support, and mm-hmm. I was able to get that from Amy D. Foundation. They also, uh, we have sponsors via Amy D., but it allowed me to connect with people in the industry and mm-hmm. kind of get my name out there. Um, when I was in Belgium, then it became a great deal more meaningful to be representing Amy D. Mm-hmm. Foundation. Yep. Um, she is definitely still remembered there. And occasionally on the side of the course, you would hear something like, go Amy. That's and obviously great. that's yeah. that's pretty inspiring. Yeah, for sure. You know, the other thing that I could never quite escape there is that I definitely have an awareness of how she passed away. Yep. Um, and the thing about Belgium is it's these narrow, tiny roads Um they're covered in mud and mm. blind corners. And it's, you know, they're very respectful of cyclists there. But the bottom line is there's so many blind corners. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of always a sense that, you know, you have to be on your toes. But but misfortune could happen there because yeah, it's that's, a pretty dangerous place. That's for sure. Yep. But obviously mm-hmm. inspiring to be a part of that legacy. And, uh, you know, we have people recognize, you know, what she meant over there. And, and obviously that must have felt good to be. Uh, be a part of that. Right. And I also felt like we had sort of had some shared experiences. She went over there um, largely by herself and Mm -hmm. made her own way Mm -hmm. by herself. So I knew that she had experienced some of the the social isolation and the challenges of training there. And Mm -hmm. so it was nice to be representing a team that of someone who had already paved that path for Americans. You uh, you talked in one of your blog posts for CX Magazine about catching the Belgian bug, and I, I'm sure that contributed to being comfortable there and all of those kinds of things. But what when did you sort of realize that Belgium was like a second home? Um, the Belgian bug is two things, I think. Um, <laughs> last year, I caught it at the end of the season, and it was a cold that would never go away. Um, <laughs> and that's actually pretty typical. Um, Amy actually experienced that the first year. She had amazing results through about Christmas and then got super sick, hmm. and her season just plummeted. Um, Elle Anderson, same thing. The first year she went over, she had some great results, and then her season plummeted. Um, so there is definitely something to that Belgian bug. Um, otherwise, for whatever reason, I think you go over there and you love it or you hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are Americans who go over and they go over just for the World Cups and mm-hmm. they come back. And yep. those are the ones that hate it. Yeah. And then there are those of us who get over there and it's sort of like we can't get enough of mm-hmm. it. And I'm really not sure what the personality is that accounts for 
wanting to go over to this place that's sort of like beating your head against the wall. <laughs> um, but some of us really do embrace Stubbornness, that. maybe? Stubbornness and, right, <laughs> trying to survive in a difficult environment. Yeah, yeah. I've had, I, it's probably the, the place that I've spent more time than anywhere else other than the U.S. And, and I've sort of caught that Belgian bug too. I mean, obviously I'm not going to race there, but you know, it just is, it's, it's that kind of a culture that really, once you get embraced by it or you embrace it, it really is, it's amazing. And I'm sure being a racer, when you see people, you know, at these, at these events and at, you know, as I'm sure you probably ran into people who saw you on the road, you know, I'm sure you probably had some experiences like that along the way too, right? Right. And, and that's different because it's, it's very hard to explain to Americans what it's like to essentially be famous mm-hmm. overnight. Yep. I mean, it's a very different sport. The closest thing we can compare it to is American football. Right. I mean, these people are obsessed. Yeah. You know, and I, one of my first years there, I ran into this old woman on the side of the road and she said, ah, <laughs> oh, Feldreiden, Feldreiden, which is, oh, wow. you know, cyclocross yeah. in Dutch. I mean, so you just run into the average person and they know about the sport, you know, or I was hanging out with Helen a couple of weeks ago and somebody came up to her in a restaurant and asked for a picture because wow. there's a facial recognition of a female cycle crosser yeah. completely out of kit. Yeah. So it's a different world. That That is interesting. And, and you've, you've mentioned a few times about the sort of lack of recognition for women cycling in particular, junior women cycling at UCI events. You started to see some changes in that. Talk about what it felt like over there. I mean, are you starting to feel that same thing? Things are changing quickly over there, and Helen has been a huge part of that with the um, Helen 100, which Mm -hmm. uh, provided race entries to British nationals, as well as there was a junior race in Lone Hope this year, um, which, again, was organized by Helen. And that had uh, 60, maybe 80 junior women. Wow. um, Mostly Europeans. I would love to see some Americans get over there for next year or the year after. Um, but watching these U23 women and junior women who are coming up, it's a different generation. Yeah. Um, I One of the races I did this year, I was right next to this U23, um, and we were going into some barriers. And typically, I'm pretty good into the barriers. Mm-hmm. I'm good at remounting and getting into my pedals right away. So I thought I was going to make a move. Um, and here I am going to these barriers, and all of a sudden, I feel this girl like kind of on my shoulder. And I look over, and she's bunny hopping. And I mean, ouch! A, she dropped me because she bunny hopped. But B, she dropped me because I was pretty much like jaw dropped. Wow, that's incredible. So I was like, did I just see that? Yeah. And that's what's different. I mean, there there are a number of 17, 18 year olds who can bunny hop. Wow. So when that generation comes up Mm -hmm. with these the skills that they have, it's going to be there's going to be a quick change as to who's on top. It's really interesting. I mean, you know, you, there are a lot of women like Marianne Voss and Zana Kant who are top-notch riders. I mean, very powerful, strong, capable riders. But to see new people coming up like that that can even challenge them, thats I mean, it sounds like they'll be ready to challenge them sooner rather than later. Right. So those are youngsters with mad skills. And yeah. Give them some time and they'll have power to go with mm-hmm. it. That's exciting. Well, you're listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're here with Corey Kugensizek, who just completed her second season of racing in Belgium on the cyclocross tour. Uh, We've got some activities happening here on campus uh, tonight. In fact, the WMCN film series is going to be featuring Les Blank's Always for Pleasure from 1978 and Anthem from 1992. Uh, They're going to be taking a spirited look at the New Orleans social traditions, including 
including Mardi Gras, which is happening even as we speak. And Anthem is a freeform music video that confronts issues of black male sexuality and identity during the HIV AIDS crisis. Both will be screened in acknowledgement of Black History Month, and they will begin at 730 tonight right here in the WMCN station. All students are welcome. So, uh, Corey, you've had a chance to now have a couple of seasons under your wheels. Is there going to be a season three in Europe? Yes, there will be a season three in Europe. Okay. What are your plans shaping up to be? What, what are some of the things you're going to do differently this year? Um, well, my as I said before, my initial plan was two years with Helen, so I felt like I could make some growth there. But I also, when I was thinking two years, I was thinking two years in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually I saved money to do two winters mm-hmm. in Belgium. What I didn't save money for was what I was going to do in between those two winters uh-huh. in Belgium. So there was definitely some fear as I was uh, ending this season to try to figure out how I was going to put it together. Um, but I have some exciting opportunities in terms of sponsorships. Um, and I also have a, a job that's coming together for me for the summer. Great. So, so I'm in the position to do it again, which that's, is very That's exciting. fantastic. So let's talk about the job first. Can you talk about the job? Absolutely. Um, I historically have worked at Data Recognition Corporation. Mm-hmm. I was a project manager there for mm-hmm. 12 years. Um, so I reached out to them, and I'm going to be doing a little contract work with them. Nice. And it's really the ideal situation because it gives me some work, uh, but I'm going to have enough time to train. That's great. And training at this level takes a lot of time. Yeah, so. I can only imagine this sort of digression a little bit, but how do you manage having sort of a full-time job and train as a full-time job at the same time? Um, <laughs> it got to the point where the answer would have been not well. Um, <laughs> you know, so last year, by the time I was hitting the end of the summer and my volume's getting quite high and the intensity is getting quite high, it was clear to me that I couldn't continue to manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, there's no way I could have managed working and being racing in Belgium simultaneously. The yeah. demands were just too much. Mm-hmm. Right. And at this point, I'm kind of at this breaking point where people who are not quite as fast as me are working and people who are faster than me are not working. Yep. Um, and yes, I think to take the next step, I, I need a little more flexibility and yeah. not to train more, mm-hmm. but really to rest more. Interesting. And so that's, I mean, that's obviously got to be part of keeping your fitness all season long is making sure that you're getting into that rest. And that's one of the things you talked about in your blog post is how important the rest is and how that was something you neglected maybe your first year more than you should have. For sure. I definitely have learned the importance of rest. I've also learned the importance of listening to my body. Mm -hmm. Um, Helen has been good at um, teaching me that there's different paces Mm -hmm. um, to different intensities. Mm -hmm. So she may be sending me out for an endurance workout, but that'll range anywhere from a relatively easy to getting closer to tempo based on how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. So it may say three hours endurance, but how hard I take that will be reflective of how I'm feeling or what I did the day before. Yeah. So I'm a lot more in tune with my body and not just power. Mm -hmm. And I know you're a skier. Are you are you doing any skiing right now as part of your wind down or for fun or? Yep, I am yeah. a skier and I've now done two days of skiing. And, it <laughs> when, is and you got home when Thursday, right? <laughs> yep, yep. Well, I I know the weather is getting colder soon, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm seizing the opportunity before I don't want to go outside. <laughs> Well, let's get back to your your upcoming season. So you talked a little bit about sponsorships a minute ago. What what can you tell us about that? Um, Well, I have been working with Cyclocross Custom, Mm -hmm. um, which is a 
race support organization mm -hmm. over in Belgium. They provide on-site support in terms of mechanic, washing bikes, um, and also a soignier. Wow. Um, and you actually, you really need that in Belgium. It's absolutely <laughs> essential. Uh, I can't imagine of, cleaning their bike all by yourself. <laughs> right, right. That would be impossible. And even um, cleaning bikes after the pre-ride. So you pre-ride wow. yeah. and they clean. And it's not just spray off the bikes. It's fully lube the bikes. Wow. So then when you get back on the bike for the next pre-ride, it's light. It feels good. You know, so that's a psychological benefit. And ultimately, it means your bikes last longer. Yeah. Um, likewise, they act as one years, which means literally picking up the jackets at the start line, which <laughs> seems like a little thing. But in Belgium, the first year I learned that it's not the U.S. You can't just throw it over the fence and assume it will stay because right. then it becomes a fan souvenir. Oh, yes. So you absolutely need someone to pick up the jacket at the beginning. Um, and as well, my friends at Cyclocross Custom helped with transport to races. Nice. Um, so it was as easy as getting into the van with them, and, and they got me there. Wow. Um, so I've been working with them, and we've put together a deal where they will be supporting me, um, both in terms of all those details mm -hmm. and uh, also putting me on frames and group sets. Wow. So That's a huge investment. That. Right. That's yep. great. So I'll be riding Flanders frame sets. Wow. So That'll be exciting, yeah. new and different to me. Indeed. Have you had a chance to ride the bikes? Or the I have not. Okay. Yep. So this is going to be something that comes together this spring. That's great. Yeah. And what, uh, what kind of gearing do you typically run on when you when you set up your system? Um, you know, I have been running uh, Wickworks, throwing that out there. They are not a sponsor. <laughs> um, yet. Yet, exactly. <laughs> um, but they're actually, they're very frequently used by women in cyclocross because they make a double a uh, chain ring that's relatively small. Mm. So it allows you to have some easy light gearing, mm -hmm. which is huge. Um, just being able to get on top of those yeah. gears. So Helen actually um, suggested that particular gearing. And I know, for example, Compton is running Wickworks mm -hmm. and using a lighter gearing. It's uh, You've seen uh, in some uh, parts of the sport that people are going to a single up front more frequently. Did you see a lot of that in the Peloton this year? You know, that that is a change. People are going to a single more frequently. It used to be in Belgium. The double was still very common because mm -hmm. there's less SRAM over there. Mm -hmm. But they're starting to see there's definitely more singles. Interesting. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously, you're going to be on a double this year. Were you on double this year as well, this past season? I was on a double mm -hmm. this last season. I was on a single in prior years. Yes. And how was that change? Did it feel like you had a better uh, range Available to I, you? I have a better range available to me. Um, one of the the strengths of it actually is for training in mm -hmm. Belgium. Sure. Because it's not a lot of fun to train on the road on a right. single. And, you know, it's not reasonable for an American to bring a road bike over on top of the two yeah, cross bikes. right. Yep. So that was an advantage. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that I truly am a climber. So to be able to have those really easy gears for climbing yep. is a big deal. Yep. You know, you look over and you see someone muscling it and mm -hmm. say, I'm really glad I'm not that person. Well, especially with some of the steep climbs that they have. I mean, those are really short, just like vertical hills a lot of times. Right. And there are courses that are significant climbs. Mm -hmm. There's this um, Overissi, which is actually relatively close to Namur. So mm -hmm. it's a typical, it's the same sort of climby environment. Mm -hmm. They have probably a climb that's at least 30 seconds, maybe 45, maybe closer to a minute. Wow. And it's a climb. Yeah. You know, so it's relatively steep. 
So those exist there. Yeah. And I'll be doing the Koppenberg this year. And that's Ooh, definitely a That's climb. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you've already got your, your, your race plan mapped out this year? Uh, my current plan is to head over after uh, the Trek Cup and mm-hmm. Jingle Cross here. Okay. So I would head over in early October. And my desire is really to be over there for some of those. Um, the Koppenberg is mm-hmm. in October. Um uh, Zonhoven mm-hmm. is typically in October, and it will be in October again. It was in December this year, and that's a favorite of mm-hmm. mine. And Ronsa, which is actually right down the road from Aldenardo, where mm-hmm. I live, is also in October. And those tend to be really climbing-oriented. And since that's my strength, Sounds I'm like excited a perfect fit. to be over there earlier. Yeah. Are you going to stay in the same place that you did last year? Um, is, my is... plan is to continue to stay in Aldenardo, mm-hmm. yes. That's great. That's great. It's a nice central location, obviously. It's a central location, and there are many people staying there, Americans yeah. and Canadians. So nice. it's it's nice to have the community. That's that's really cool. So uh, other potential sponsors, have you started working with, with other people or trying to figure out what you want to do to put together a full suite? Right. So I am putting together my own team. Mm-hmm. Um, it is tentatively going to be called Triple C Racing, okay. uh, pending anyone else already possessing <laughs> that name. Um, and you, yes. After the show, you better trademark that. Cause. <laughs> well, right, right. Um, so yes, I'm trying to pull together um, a group of sponsors. That's so great. I have a lot of resumes out there and trying to make things come together. Good for So you. it was a balance at the end of the season because you're trying to finish up your season, but at the same time, you kind of already have your foot into the next season. Sure. Yep. I'm sure you're trying to lay the groundwork while you're over there. Are you going to bring anybody else on the team with you or is it going to be focused on you? At this point, it will be me. Um, going forward, I could see it potentially gaining other riders. Mm-hmm. Um one of the goals is really to position myself as someone who can contribute to the sport um, as a coach or as a director. So there's talk of potentially doing some camps over there as soon as next year. Really? Women's camps. I'm talking to two different people about that. And that would be something I'd be helping out with. I'm also planning to mentor one to two juniors hmm. um, this summer. So American juniors? Out there. American juniors. I'm actually... Targeting Midwest juniors, because I think to be a mentor, you need to be around them on a regular basis. Yeah, right. So I'll be seeking applicants for that. I was going to um, say, so do, do you exciting. have people in mind yet for that? I mean, have you talked I to I will be reaching out to the local teams okay. and asking them to suggest. Boy, that's fantastic. Right. So it'll be one or it'll be two, mm-hmm. um, depending on who's the right fit. That's great. It's yeah. It sounds like a really exciting program. I mean, you talked about the need for more juniors from the U.S. to go over there and sort of take advantage of what's being being built. What are some of the things that you think people are going to need the most help with as you start to plan for that sort of mentorship? Well, I, some of it is as simple as logistics. Mm-hmm. Um, I helped a lot of people who were going over this year mm-hmm. who reached out to me nice. um, because it's as simple as where do you find mechanics? Yeah. Where do you fly into? Where do you stay? Mm-hmm. How do you register for a race? Right. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, there's a website for registering. It's all in Dutch, <laughs> but it's not something you intuitively know. No. How do you register for a World Cup? Right. So lots of little questions like mm-hmm. that that I was able to answer, much of which I found myself via trial and error. So to be able to actually readily point people to resources is making yeah. their lives easier. You know, it's 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 interesting because a lot of people have talked here about it, how sort of challenging it is to register for your first bike race in the U.S. And and you complicate that by, you know, an exponential factor when you when you have a different language and don't know anywhere you're where you're going. And yeah, I can imagine how that that's a tricky part. And and as to the stress, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you talked about that comfort level. I mean, like knowing where registration is. 
Right, right. <laughs> and and that's the other thing is when you get to these races, you know where nothing is. Right. Um, and a lot of I think is maybe transparent mm-hmm. to those from Belgium and the Netherlands. Um, certainly once you've done it, you know where registration is. Sure. But your very first time you get there, you say, inscribing? Mm. Inscribing us to believe? <laughs> you know, um, so that's asking for registration. Right. One of the challenges of races is that I find that that is the one place where volunteers tend not to speak English. Um, wow. Right. Well, part of this comes from the parking situation. When you drive onto a venue, yeah. there are parking guards who let the racers into certain levels of parking. Sure. Typically, the men's elite being the best, closest parking, calling by are. women's elite <laughs> and so on and so forth. So these parking areas are well guarded. Yep. By volunteers. Yep. And these volunteers, I believe, rise through the ranks year after year. So uh, they start and maybe they're running junior parking and they're the first guard <laughs> at junior parking. Um, so when you go into these venues, you go through like series of guards. You'll have three at a first checkpoint and three at a second checkpoint and three at another. Wow. And by the time you get to that person at the innermost checkpoint, They've been there a number of years. Yeah. So they're typically an old man in the village. And they're fully trained bullies. <laughs> and and they speak a dialect of Flemish. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's the one place that um, speaking a little Dutch uh, is a help. Is a valuable thing. Right, yeah. right. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So, right. So finding those things at the mm-hmm. races. So now that we have more Americans over there. They can say, you know, where's registration? And I can right. point them to it. Or or if I go to a race and it's new to all of us, well, mm-hmm. we send three of us looking for it and somebody's yeah. going to find it. Yeah. So the group thing helps. Yep. Is there going to be a triple C motorhome? Uh, I think we can rest assured the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I would like that very much, but I don't see the funding stream coming together. Yeah, that seems yeah. like the pinnacle of cross, you know, when you've when you've got your own motorhome. It is. Uh, it's, it's the standard over there. You know, maybe there's an RV world, you know, from the U.S. that might be willing to ship you one over here. Oh, That's I'm sure. Sponsorship right. opportunity. Get right on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so uh, obviously you've got kind of your race plan. You've got your, your mentorship plan, your team, your team strategy. Have you started setting your goals for the season? I mean, you what know, do you want to feel like you'll have been successful if you do these things? I do definitely have goals. Um, they're a bit hard to describe. Basically, uh when you've been over there enough, you start to finish in the same position among people. Yeah. And I really feel like I'm knocking on the door into making another jump because I had a number of races this year where um, if they were climbing races, I was able to get into a different group. Nice. A little higher up in the field. So I'm starting. There's a next group. They're not too far away. I was able to get into it a couple times in races that I had stronger performances. So obviously my next jump is to try to get into that group on a regular basis. Fantastic. And are there some particular people in that group that you're comparing yourself to that are sort of the benchmark for you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you, you see the same people all the time. Sure. That's, yep. that's exciting. And so, um, you know, as you kind of think through those races that you want to target and the goals you want to set, are there some races that you think that, you know, that next step could be the podium? Um, no, no, that is absolutely <laughs> impossible. Barring say a snowstorm and some sort of plague sl- sweeping through the Peloton. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think you, you decide, is it worthwhile to do something where you can't be one of the best in the world? Yep. And and ultimately, I've decided, yes, it's worthwhile for me to do something where I can be 20th, yeah. where I can potentially be mid-pack. Mm-hmm. And it's 
it's been a, a difficult decision to move away from racing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because the fact that I'm leaving the U.S. when I do will actually mean that my U.S. ranking and my world ranking will go down. Sure. Probably tremendously. Yeah. Because it is, it is much more difficult to be successful over there. Yeah. Um, so if I were to stay here and race a bunch of C2s, mm-hmm. I would have better chances of starting World Cups sure. over there. Yep. But ultimately, it, my strong desire is to be over there. Yeah. So I'm willing to be a a mid-packer you know and I think that's typical mm-hmm. on the road like that is a an established thing that people do you right. stay in America or you go to Europe yep. I mean there's certainly a lot of people who go to Europe and they're a domestique in Europe mm-hmm. it's, it's essentially the same thing I'm doing yeah. you know I'm over there and I'm I'm only ever going to be a mid-packer mm-hmm. but it's worth it to me to be racing internationally so as you think of you know five years ish uh, down the road maybe 10 years what does cyclocross look like for you you know well, I don't imagine that there'll be a five-ish year <laughs> just down the road. I imagine there'll be a one-ish or a two-ish years down the mm-hmm. road. Um, at this point, I'm looking towards transitioning out of the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not sure how quickly. Ultimately, uh, as an athlete, I want to get as far as I can. And when I'm done improving is mm-hmm. when I'll be done with the sport. Um, but like I said, that next generation is coming, too. So it's entirely possible that I could continue to improve and yet my results could go down. <laughs> um, and when that happens, I'm, you know, I'm not interested in continuing to pursue it. Yeah. So ultimately, I want to be coaching or directing. So I'm trying to move myself into the position that I can be making a significant impact mm-hmm. on juniors racing cycle cross in Europe. I mean, obviously, Helen has had a big impact on on your career so far. Are there other people that you look at as a model for how you would want to coach and mentor people? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> you know, not so much. Uh, in a lot of ways, envisioning what I'm envisioning is something that hasn't been done so yeah. much before. Um, we haven't had a lot of success in Europe. Right. We don't have a lot of coaches who have been coaching cycle crossers who are going to Europe. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason I'm going over there and gaining that experience is because I want to be one of those people who has the experience. Mm-hmm who can then bring the next generation over. Yeah. We just, we don't have a lot of success over there. And so I want to be part of creating success. Have you had, I mean, have there been support networks from the U S I mean, obviously you've gotten some real support from people in the, in, in Belgium and Europe generally, have you felt like you've gotten support from the U S cycling infrastructure broadly? Um, you know, part of the reason I think I ended up going to Europe is because I, well, I ended up going to Europe because I was interested in racing in Europe, Mm -hmm. but it's been impressive, the support that I've received over there. And as a result, I've really built that network Mm -hmm. over there. Um, I will say that I have been impressed by USA Cycling, and I know there's not a lot of people who say that, (laughs) but I've had a truly positive experience in terms of them being supportive at World Cups, Mm -hmm. being good about... um, getting me into these races, uh, being respectful of me, even though I'm a mid-packer in the World Cups. That's great. Yeah. It, so it's been positive. That's that's really good. I mean, obviously, it, it seems like it's an individual sport in, in so many ways, but yet without that that platform to per, for performance, it's, it's really hard, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It can't be an individual sport because there's so much support that's needed. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually on race day, but also as you attempt to succeed as an athlete. Sure. Absolutely. And so as you think about your career, what would you like people to have looked back on what you've done on the bike, off the bike? You know, when you think about Corey and and cyclocross, what would you like people to be able to say about you? 
Um, you know, part of it is that I continue to stick with it. Yeah. And there were definitely a number of years that I plateaued and yeah. didn't think I was getting any better. Um, but I reached out and did something that was a dream for me, and it actually has led to improved performances. Um, so I would like people to see me as someone who kept knocking her head against the wall. <laughs> and, and In ultimately, true Belgian form, right? Right, and ultimately <laughs> that paid off for me. And also the fact that I'm... 41 years old, and I'm still racing at the elite professional level. Um, a lot of people have moved on to big adult life by yeah. now. And and there's something to be said by for continuing to, to chase those dreams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. How do people follow what you're going to be doing this summer and the rest of the season? Where, where should people go to stay in touch? Um, well, as you know, I wrote for Cyclocross Magazine last year, mm -hmm. a series called The Cyclocross Apprenticeship, mm -hmm. and I will do that again this coming season. Nice. So that'll be a seasonal thing. I'm also on Instagram as Coogan Sizek and Twitter as C. Coogan Sizek with all the C's capitalized. And I also have a personal Facebook uh, account. Fantastic. Well, Corey, it's been a ton of fun having you here in the studio. Uh, is there anything else coming up that we should make sure everybody knows about? No, no. you know, I'm trying to get over that jet lag and <laughs> soon I'll be starting to train again. <laughs> you see, if you, if you see people out on, on the ski slopes, are you going to, you know, ask them to join in or are you going to say, you know, pull me along for a while? Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> first, I, first I'm going to ask what, you know, what day and time we're right. at, right? Yeah. Yeah. And ask for, figure out where, uh, you know, where the uh, registration is, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming, Corey. This Thank has been a ton of fun. Me. Uh, we've got a few housekeeping things that we need to do. We always have our event calendar at the end of each show. Um, coming up this week on Tuesday, or excuse me, Wednesday night, we've got the Fat Wednesday races at Keller Lake Park, which is a uh, fat bike race, in case you hadn't figured that out. We've also got the Fat Thursday Cyclocrits uh, at Lord Fletcher's on the 28th. And then also on the 28th, Bike Alliance of Minnesota is going to be having their uh, state bike summit at the Capitol on uh, Thursday. The Strider Snow Cup race is going to be at Buck Hill on uh, March 2nd, a week from today. And then there's the Snow Crush uh, Fat Bike Race uh, also on the 2nd in Faribault. And uh, one of the things that just uh, was announced today, which is exciting, is the return of the Minnesota Ironman bike ride. So that ride had taken a year hiatus uh, and now free bikes for kids has taken over that event and they're going to be putting on that event on june 15th so a lot of changes there it's not going to be epic from a weather perspective we're going to let the ride be epic i think is the the message uh, and that's going to take place uh, starting and finishing in shakopee with scott county uh, is the as the uh, sort of location for that event um, and there are a few fun things that are planned including about a mile long climb. There's about 3000 feet of vertical elevation in that ride, which is kind of amazing in Minnesota, but it should be a lot of fun. If you want to learn more about that event and how to register, you can find that on MN iron, or excuse me, on ironmanbikeride.org, ironmanbikeride.org. This has been Blast Beats and Bicycles at 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. Tune in next week, and as usual, thanks again, Corey, for being on the show. Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. 
Jesus, I don't wanna be a candidate for Vietnam or Watergate. 